So uh, we've been doing a series on the book of Psalms over the summer, um, and a lot of kind of this idea of pictures of God, pictures that God gives us of himself in the book of Psalms. And it was really funny um, because I definitely asked Lloyd like two months ago, like, you got to tell me what I'm preaching on because I need like a lot of time to work on this. This is not my usual teaching method. Um, This morning I taught middle school Sunday school. We had a lot of moving around. We're not going to make you guys move around too much today. Um, just want to get you a little nervous for that. No, um, not my usual teaching style. So, you know, we're, we're talking as a staff and Lloyd kind of gives us all different chapters in the books of Psalms. And um, it's funny as I, as I listen to Lloyd preach, I love listening to him preach. And he talks about, you know, well, I was reading through commentaries. I was listening to sermons and this guy says this and this guy says that. And I'm trying to figure out like, where's the truth between the different interpretations of these verses and these complex issues. And so I'm looking at Psalm 33 and I, I go to Lloyd and I talk to him before he left, you know, about what I was going to preach on. And I said, this is kind of what I feel pretty clearly what the outline is. And he's like, yeah, that, that's about right. That's about it. It's like nothing, nothing, no nuance, no complexity there. He's like, it pretty much is what it says. So I'm not sure what that means for how he views my preaching and teaching. Where he's like, you know what, Mike, you take the easy one. And I said, I will because I don't mind at all. Uh, So we are going to look at Psalm 33 today. That's going to be the psalm we're going to focus on. But I want to start out talking about greatest hits, greatest hits albums. And I'm going to ask you, we have to be interactive. I'm used to teaching in an interactive style. So here's what you get to do. I am telling you to text in church. Oh yeah, it's happening, people. It's happening. And I promise, I 100% promise, I will not text you back unless you ask me to and even then, I'll probably forget. But okay, so here's what I want you to do. I want you to text me. I got my phone right here. I want you to text me your favorite greatest hits albums. I don't care. I don't care who they are, what it is. I want to hear from you guys. What are your, some of your favorite greatest hits albums? Okay, all right, they're coming. Also, Lloyd was like, oh, that might like interfere with your microphone. So if I cut in and out, it's your fault. All right, oh, this is good. Okay, good, good, good. All right, so here's some that I won't say who sent them in. Uh, okay, so we've got uh, Barry Manilow. What are you laughing? That's legitimate. It's legitimate. Joni Mitchell's Hits. That's a good one. Uh, Queen, The Eagles. We're going to come back to The Eagles. Um, the Beatles, Veggie Tales. There's Veggie Tales. Uh, Beach Boys, of course. Uh, who else? Who else we got here? There's tons of them. Journey, um, Billy Joel. Really? Okay. Temptations? Oh, yeah, of course. And me. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate that one, buddy. All right. So, I set that down. Uh, so, I want to talk about greatest. Do you guys know? Do you guys know what the best selling greatest hits album of all time is? And get this it's like first place, and second place doesn't even have half of what first place has. Can you guys guess what it is? It's not the Beatles. Nope. It, it uh, came out in 1976. It was The Eagles' greatest hits album. is the best-selling greatest hits album of all time. And not only that, this part kind of blew me away. It is the second best-selling album of all time. The Eagles' greatest, and that came out the year before Hotel California, their biggest hit ever. So yeah, The Eagles, and it's, it was kind of crazy to look at because they sold like 30 million copies, and the next, like, best-selling greatest hits album sold, like, 12. 
So I'm thinking, like, 1976, did they release, like, three albums, like, just in the world? There were just three choices that year. So everybody bought the Eagles. Um, but I'd sorry, my favorite, I had to think of my favorite greatest hits albums, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, greatest hits album. The only downside to that, it came out before Wildflowers, which is exceptional stuff. Uh, and then uh, The Essential Bruce Springsteen, that is a three-disc set not to be missed. Uh, and then Neil Diamond's Greatest Hits, 1966 to 92. That's important to note because there's like 18 different Greatest Hits Neil Diamond album. That's the best one. Take my word for it. You won't be disappointed. Uh, and we like Greatest Hits albums because they, they kind of give us the highlights of an artist or a band that we really enjoy. Um, we can listen to a Greatest Hits album. I was just talking to Jeff about this this morning. And uh, he's talking about every time he hears the Eagles... He's instantly transported back to the summer that song came out because he was on a road trip with his family in a Winnebago. It was in the top 10. They heard it all the time. He's instantly transported back. I can listen to, you know, I can listen to Neil and Bruce and Tom Petty. I can listen to these. And I can be like, I remember like when that song really hit me because, yes, I was not alive when all of those greatest hits came out. Um, but when they hit me, you're like, oh, I remember that time in my life when I listened to that song. And that really struck me. And it's like these greatest hits can take us back in the past. And hopefully, if we like the artist enough, what is to come, what's hopefully coming in the future. And I think Psalm 33, in a lot of ways, is like a God's greatest hits. It's like a God's greatest hits. There are three things it's going to lay out in Psalm 33. And I think those are, those are three incredible attributes and characteristics of God that lead us to a deeper place of worship of him. And I think that's the purpose of Psalm 33. So we're going to get right into it. Uh, if you open up your Bible, or you got the Pew Bible, I already noted mine, I cheated earlier. It's on page 463, so I'm going to read from that. Uh, and I just want to start uh, with the first, the opening, the first three verses that Dustin mentioned during worship. It says, Shout for joy in the Lord, you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. This is a party they're talking about. They're talking about bringing all these instruments together. Play them skillfully. Play them loud. Sing. Shout. This is an Old Testament rockestra, is what they're putting together. And what I love about it, what I love about having that as the introduction to this psalm, is this is, this is an exciting time. This should inspire us. You're talking about the, the things we're going to talk about, the praises we're going to sing to God. Don't sing them quietly. This is be loud. Play there and get all the harps, get everything together. And in fact, he talks about the benefit that we receive from this kind of worship. And right away in verse 1, shout for joy in the Lord, you O oh, you righteous. Praise befits the upright that we gain a benefit from this. We get to stand before God who has made us righteous. And we get to honor and praise him. And that this idea that worship affects us too, the honesty and, and vulnerability with which we approach worship can change us as well, can change our hearts. 
So we're starting out with this party. Uh, the, psalm, the psalm isn't like given an author, but it's most often tied with chapter 32 that comes before it. And so it's most widely accepted that, that David's probably the author of this psalm. Um, but yeah, like, let's sing, let's shout, let's dance, let's be excited to worship and honor God. And I'm going to give you three reasons why he just gets right into it. And so the first reason is the power of God's word. It's the power of God's word. And this is verses four through nine. Uh, they're up on the screen. You can follow along. Uh, I'm going to read all of four through nine. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it commanded to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. That, that's a description of power. What real power looks like. And I want to break it down into three ways. You got that one up there? The first, verses 4 and 5, the character of God's word. 6 and 7, the power of God's word. And 8 and 9, the natural response to God's word. So 6 and 7, or sorry, 4 and 5, starting out there. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. We're looking at, like, this is the character of God's word. And I, I, we could say, like, the importance of the character of words. When we talk about the word of the Lord, we're talking about this major concept in the Bible. It comes back to it over and over again. The word of the Lord. The Lord spoke, and this happened. That so often God demonstrates his power by simply speaking and things come to be. So verse 4 describes the word of the Lord as upright and acting faithfully. So how do we know that the word of the Lord is upright, that he keeps his promises? Because he's proven himself to be faithful. All right? So the word of the Lord is upright because God has proven himself to be faithful. Over and over again, God does what he says he's going to do. He's proven that through scripture. He's proven that through history. He's proven it in my life. I'm sure he's proven it in yours. That the word of the Lord is upright and faithful. And in verse 5, we get these three qualities of God. Righteousness, justice, and love. This is this is a picture of a perfect ruling authority in our life. When you think of the, the power of words, like for someone to speak, an action happens. Like that's, that's authority. That's power. But it's not, it's not with a strong hand. It's with righteousness, justice, and love. And that's a, an important thing for us to remember as we start talking about the word of the Lord and what the word of the Lord is like. That it is good and it is true. It is powerful, but it is good, and it is true. So six and seven, so we get kind of the character of God's word. We understand the character of, of what God is going to say. Um, it should be like 
we can hear things in, like that people might say or opinions people might share about the Bible or Scripture. We have something we can go back to and measure other people's words against. Because the word of the Lord is upright and true. I know what God says. I know what God's like. I can kind of measure things against that. So six and seven are looking, looking at how God acts. And we get two actions from his word alone uh, in verses six and seven. He talks about the creation of the heavens and the storing up of the waters. And this first section, looking at God's word, I love, I love the way this psalm is put together. Because when we talk about the power of God's word, we're looking back at the past. We're looking at the ways that God has proven his word to be powerful. He's proven it to be true. So right away, it's referencing creation. It's referencing Genesis chapter 1. When God created the world, 6 and 7 say, uh, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in the storehouses. And this is simply by his word. God doesn't have to, doesn't have to take action to make this happen. It's that kind of power that he can speak it. So I love, I love space stuff. Uh, I love space exploration stuff. Today is actually NASA's 60th anniversary. Um, and I love, I love reading about stuff they're doing, stuff they're working on, because as we look out into the cosmos, we see, always see these pictures of power. And power we can't comprehend. Like scientists try and put it in orders of magnitude to help us understand distance and energy output and what this looks like. And our brains can't even wrap our heads around it. And here, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By God speaking, this cosmos was created. And that's, that's power. That's raw power. We can't even put those things into context. Yet God just speaks and they happen. So then we get to 8 and 9. Let all, our response, the natural response to this, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. So what is our response to this level of power in our lives that says we need to fear the Lord? And remember, that's not the same fear that a child has of a monster under the bed, but it's that fear that's more better understood as like that awe, that respect. Uh, on Friday, this upcoming Friday, we're going to take students to Rocky Mountain National Park. Uh, we do a camping trip every summer. We go to a different national park. And we're going to Colorado this year. Um, and every year, it's, it's just amazing to, to get out into the wilderness. I love camping because I think it always reminds me of that, what that healthy fear looks like. When you see like the dark clouds rolling in, and you're like hiking up above the tree line. And you look around and you realize, I'm now the tallest thing here. I need to go down very, very fast to get into a place where you're like, I am completely at the mercy of the world around me. Like that, that kind of fear, that's what we're talking about. Like I can respect that. I can stand in awe of it. To go to a place where like, we are at the mercy of what everything, like if it rains, it's going to rain and we can't do anything about it. If it's going to be windy, it's going to be windy. We can't do anything about it. But we need to have a healthy fear and a respect and an awe of those things. It's that same thing when we look at God. He spoke and it came to be. 
He commanded and it stood firm. When we look at God, it's not from a position of of fear, like I need to be afraid of what God's going to do, but it's to understand the power that God has. And to be like, I don't understand that. When I look back and read the beginning of Genesis and the way that God speaks, and the earth is put together, the whole universe is assembled, I can't understand that, but I can respect that. I can stand in awe. I can go outside when we get done, and I can look around, and I can be in awe and know that God created all that with his words, his words that are upright and true and faithful. So this first part of Psalm 33 is calling our attention to the power of God's word. We need to praise him for the power that's demonstrated in his word. As we look back, this section continues to remind us of Genesis chapter 1. Over and over in Genesis chapter 1, in that first chapter, you know, the Lord spoke, and this happened. God just speaks, and this happens. And so we need to worship God for the power of his word. So the next thing, the next set of verses that I want to look at is the power of God's will. The power of God's will. And this is really verses 10 through 12, 10, 11, and 12. It says, The Lord brings the counsel of nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. And like, just being honest, like, I needed those verses. Like, I needed to read those and study those. It is It's hard for me to read news and not be discouraged. I think you guys can probably relate to that feeling. Like, there are days where it's like, you know what, Twitter, we're not going to do it today. You're just going to stay unopened on the phone. I don't even want to go there. I don't need to feel bad about the world I live in. You know, to read the news and be like, bad news, bad news, bad news, bad news. That's why I like to read NASA. It's so rarely bad news. They're like, hey, we shot off a satellite and it went up in the air. I'm like, well, that's good. All right, I feel good about that. Great. But I, like, you just get like beaten down over time, like discouraged over and over again. You're just like, oh, man, like, this is awful. And in that, like, God kind of taps me on the shoulder. He's like, hey, weren't we just talking about the power of my word? What I can do? I made this universe. You think I'm going to be discouraged? by the news. So if the first chapter, if the power of God's word wants us to look back, the power of God's will wants us to look forward. We want to look into the future. It says, the the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the people. And I thought it was interesting that it uses this word frustrate, because if I'm just reading it, I understand it like, you know, you're going to try and do something and I'm just going to mess it up. And that's not really the idea that the, the word is getting at. I learned a new Hebrew word this week. It was new. It's just N-U. It wasn't that hard. But it means, it's that word frustrate, and it means to hold back, hinder, or disallow. That as we make plans, as we make plans, you know, as people, as individuals, as we make plans as a community in Sioux City, as a state, as a nation, as a world, God will not allow those plans to get in the way of his will and what he's doing. 
It says he'll frustrate. He will not allow those plans to get in the way of what he's doing. Some of the commentary I read used the description on these verses like his triumphant will. That God's will is ultimately triumphant over all things. Uh, the counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. That God's, God's will continues to move forward. As we read the story of the Bible, it is, it is a story of God's will for redeeming the world. Constantly moving forward in the face of humanity's setbacks and failures. Over and over again, you could read the Bible and think like, that's it. That's the end of the book. What are we going to do after that? I mean, it's like beginning of Genesis. Adam and Eve eat the apple. And you're like, well, we had a good run. You know, that was pretty fun. All right, what next? But the Bible continues to go on for thousands of pages, for thousands of generations. You read, you know, Noah and the flood. And like, how could people that quickly get that far away from God? Of course, of course, wipe it out. What good is it anyways? And God says, I'm not done. I'm not done with people. I'm not done with redeeming people. In the Old Testament, you know, we get to the end of Genesis and it's the, the, the chosen people, the Hebrew people are in bondage in Egypt and Exodus starts out that as a people, they cry out to God. And God hears their prayers like, God, what are you going to do with a nation of slaves? People people who've been in bondage for 400 years. What are you supposed to do with them? And God says, that's my people. You just wait and see what I'm going to do. You think you guys have plans? Remember, I made the world. <laughs> you guys can make plans. That's fun. Watch what I'm going to do now. You know, over and over in the story of the Bible, the failure of David, um, the rupturing of the kingdom of Israel with the moral failure of Solomon and, and his son takes one half of the country, his general takes another, and eventually one country falls, the other country falls, and you get to the end of the Old Testament, which is the story we've been talking about in our youth ministry this last year, kind of the story of the Old Testament, and it is a story in ruins. It's like, God's, where's your will in this? Where's your plan in these ashes? in broken down walls and an empty city, in a nation that's completely taken over by another. Where's your plan in this? And God says, my will will be triumphant. All the plans of men, they don't get in my way. And eventually, we read in the New Testament of the coming of Jesus, the most unexpected Result: The most unexpected arrival of the Messiah that anyone could have imagined. A baby born in a stable. And we see through the story of Jesus this kind of upside-down way of looking at victory and triumph. And if we continue to read through the Old Testament, we see the growth of the church of a people who are beaten down and oppressed and persecuted. And it continues to grow, and God says, my will's not going to be stopped. And eventually what I, think, what I think this psalm can point us ahead to is all the way to Revelation. If you want to turn in your Bible, skip ahead almost all the way to the back. We're almost at the end of the story. Go to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, page 1040. There's not much Bible left after that point. Because God's plan is almost done, but it's not quite done. We go all the way to Revelation chapter 19. And you get, I mean, it's just 
the most bonkers, bonkers stuff to read. Uh, it says in verse 19, and this is, uh, this is John talking, his vision he saw, and I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him. The armies of the earth gathered to make war against God. Now, we know the inside story because we just got done talking about the power of God's word and what he could do by speaking. So before this, it talks about uh, John sees the, the pale rider on the white horse, and that's Jesus Christ returning. All right, so uh, these armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And you think like this is like the big battle. This is the final showdown. This is like where you spend all your special effects budget. It's all happening right here. All right, this is like the end of Return of the King. Remember like the hour-long battle scene at the end, which was awesome. All right, this is better than that because this is everybody. But here's what it says in verse 20. And the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image. Those two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. There's a warm fuzzy for you. Mm, that's a good one. I didn't even read the better part I like. It almost feels like bragging. Verse 17, if you go up a little bit. An angel standing in the sun with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, he goes on. It's like this angel in the sun is standing there like, this isn't going to be a fight. There's no fight to be had. You get to this final scene in Revelation, this incredible moment where the armies of the earth are gathered to make war on God. And it says they are slain by the sword of his mouth. It wasn't a fight. It was never going to be a fight because the power of God's will will not be stopped. When I get discouraged, when I, when I read headlines, when I look at the world around me, and I'm like, Lord, when? Like, how much worse does it get? How much, how much worse can it get from here? God's like, hey, my will's not done yet. Like, we haven't gotten to the end of this story. We're living in those pages before Revelation. The story's not over. You look ahead to what I'm going to do. You remember what I did, the power of my word, and you look ahead to what I'm going to do in my will. And you take hope in that, that I will redeem this world and I will bring you home. And to me, that should be, that should be encouraging. To me, that should, give me, that should give me hope. It should inspire me. It should convict me. It should convict who I am that I can't let, as it says, turning back to Psalm 33, I can't let the counsel of nations or the plans of people get in my way. Because the counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord and the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. We as followers of Christ today, we are that heritage. We are God's will continually lived out on earth as we live into the calling that Jesus has put into our life to bring about the kingdom of God. We are that heritage. And that, that should give me hope. 
which gets us to our last section, the power of God's watch, not, not wristwatch. It's like gaze, the power of God's watch. I had a third point, and I needed that alliteration. I had to get it. Can't have a three-point sermon without alliteration. Then you should be like, hmm, where's this pastor coming from? No alliteration here? Mm-mm. All right. Psalm 33, verses 13 to 19. It says, The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope of salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. So if the power of God's word tells us to look back at what God has done, and God's will causes us to look forward at what he's going to do. When we think about God's watch, that brings us to now, where we are right here. And I kind of break it up in three ways, looking at the intensity of God's watch, the false hopes we tend to cling to, and the true hope that God offers his people. I want to look at this section kind of in those three ways. Uh, the first one, in verses 13 to 15, scan it real quick. What word is repeated four times? Four times, just, read, just shout it out. We can do a little interaction here, it's okay. What word is repeated four times as you read it? All. All. Over and over and over. The Lord looks down from heaven, he sees all the children of men, from where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashioned the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. In an effort to make sure nothing is missed here. All over and over and over again. Nothing is beyond God's watch. He sees everything. And he is fully and completely informed on the world as it is. There is no part of this world that is beyond his sight. There is no heart of man that is hidden from him. After all, it says, verse 15, he who fashioned the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. God is watching and God sees. He is fully informed and complete. And then in verse 13 and 14, it used this phrase, look out. God looks out. And as I read that the first time, I was kind of like, look out. That's interesting to think about. So I, I'm a, kind of a visual guy. I'm trying to think, like, what does this look like? Kind of imagine God sitting on his throne, looking out at all he surveys, you know. Um, but it's more intense than that. It's more intense. It's using uh, two different words for look out, but both of them are active. They're active verbs. It's not God passively sitting back looking out. Uh, it's, it's often thought of like looking intently, searching. And then I thought this was interesting. One definition was 
considering what he sees. So God is looking out. He's seeing all the inhabitants of the earth, all the children of men. He is considering what he sees. He is watching. He's searching. This is not a passive activity. It's very active, and he's watching intensely on everything that happens. Why? Well, it continues the thought in verses 16 and 17. There's no, there's no paragraph break if you look in your Bible. It says, The king is not saved by his great army, a warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope of salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. A little callback to the power, I should point to this side, the, the power of God's will. God's looking out, he's watching the affairs of men, he's searching, he's considering the motives of men, the things he sees, the hearts of men. And he sees people who are clinging to false hopes, clinging to things that can't save them. They may look impressive, and to us on our scale of finiteness, these things are impressive. The armies of men are impressive. But God says the king isn't saved by his great army, a warrior by his great strength, and the war horse is that false hope of salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue In the end, God is like, people, I'm watching. I'm watching what you do. I see everything that happens. Don't lose heart. Don't cling to these false hope, false promises. I would equate this in my life. I look for things that are going to make me feel secure. You know, kind of like, I don't want to say like status symbol isn't the right word, but like I want to be secure in my life. I want to take care of Kristen. I want to be safe. And God says, please remember that those things you look to, those things you cling to for safety, they are also finite. They are limited in what they can do. Limited to the extent all of it's going to pass away. I mean, gosh, if we get to all the armies of the earth gathered against God and he just speaks and that's it. Don't put your hope in these things that can fail. God's watching. He's searching my life. And he goes on to say in 18 and 19, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in the famine. And this, that's the true hope. God is watching. He's looking. Because God says, I'm going to rescue my people. I'm going to save their soul from death. I'm going to rescue them from the famine. If you want hope, real hope, hope that doesn't prove itself to be false, hope that's not put in in people who are fallible, find that hope in me and what I can do. You know the power of my word. You know the power of my will. Know the power of my watch that I see you. I see all of you. As I put you completely together, I fashioned you into who you are. And I will rescue you. To me, that gives me hope. To think that as a child of God, as somebody who has has looked at their life, recognized the fact that I am a sinner who puts his hope in false and finite things. I say to God, I can't do that. I can't do it on my own. I need you to rescue me. I trust in your son, Jesus Christ, and the work he did on the cross to do things that I can't do. 
I can't save myself just like, a, just like the war horse and its great might. It can't rescue me. The biggest tank in the world can't save my soul. It just doesn't work. But I go to God and I say, I need you to rescue me. I submit to you. I humble myself before you. And God says, you're mine. You belong to me. And I will rescue your soul from death. I will rescue you from the famine. Two things that the ancient Israelites, when Psalm was written, were intimately familiar with. Surrounded by a culture and a community that saw the weather patterns as the whims and wills of their gods. God in heaven says, don't worry about that. I'll protect you. I'll take care of you. I'm bigger. You know my word. And you know what I will do. I am with you and I see you. That God, this is his counter offer to what the world wants to give us, to what the world wants us to see. This is God's alternative. I want to give you a better plan. I want to give you something that won't let you down, that won't, that won't break your heart, something that's proven itself to be true and will continue to be true. You grab onto this and I see you and I hold on to you. To me, that's a pretty, pretty great feeling. So we get to our response at the end of Psalm 33. Verses 20, 21 and 22. After reading these things, after considering the word of the Lord, what God has proven himself to do, the will, what God will do, and the fact that God sees me right now, right here, he sees you. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. In three verses, it takes us back. Our soul waits for the Lord. I'm waiting for what God will do. For my heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. I know what his word has done. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you, right here right now, today. That's what I need. That's what I need to be reminded of. That's what I need to know. That this, I think these, these three verses should be a defining verse for the church today. That we need to be a people who our soul waits only for the Lord. He's our help and our shield. Our heart is glad in him because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us even as we hope in you. As, uh, as Luke taught in the class this morning, talking about salvation, we are in an already not yet state of life. Christ has worked on the cross to save us from our sins, but we are not yet entered into the presence of God. We're in this in-between. I'm in this place where I get discouraged when I read headlines. I'm in this place where I lose sight of what's powerful in my life, and I need God to protect me. So I'll the worship team come back up. We're going to do another texting interaction. Now for this, um, be a little different. I want you to consider those things in your life that you praise God for. 
those things maybe he's proven to be true, those things about him you know to be true, and you praise God for that, or maybe they're things that you're looking forward for God to do, that you want to praise God for those, or maybe there's something in your life right now where you say, God, I praise you for this. I want you to text me those. And again, I promise I will not text you back unless you ask me to. But we're, I'm going to read some of those as we sing this song. So I'm going to invite you, you can have your phone in hand, it's okay, to stand up and we're going to sing one more song in response to what God has done, what he will do, and what he's doing right now. Would you stand up with us? Praise God because he is faithful and strong when everything falls apart. Praise God because he saved me. Praise God for a redeemed life, immutable hope, his patience with us, drawing me back to him. Praise God for his sovereignty in his timing and sanctification. Praise God for his mercy and his grace, his steadfast love in our lives, our rock. Praise God for friends that help me grow in my faith providing for needs unfailingly. I'm so thankful he does not change because I do. I fail. He does not. I praise God for being completely faithful in answered prayers. Father, we pray as we go out these doors today and we look up at the sky, we look at the greenery around us, we would remember who made it, by whose word this world was created and the power in that word. And Lord, I pray those times when we get discouraged, those times when we find our hope is fleeting, we need to remember the triumph of your will, that your will will not be stopped by whatever we do, but that you're still at work in us, God. And we thank you that you see us and you rescue us as your children, whom you love and care for, whom over and over you forgive and you are proven to be faithful. God, I pray that what we talked about today is just the start of a new thing in our lives, a new time of worship and honor that we can praise you for who you are and how great you are to us. Father, in your most holy name, we pray and we live. Amen. Thank you very much. Have a great